Good afternoon and welcome to this episode of Nucleus Investment Insights. Uh, has bank lending shuttered to a halt with Professor Steve Keane? Uh, we are a little bit late, so I thank you all for those who are logged in live for bearing with us as we uh, we get uh, get up and running. So by now you know the stats on the interest rate rises we've seen in Australia. We've had 12 in 15 months. Combined with a stubbornly low unemployment rate confirmed just this morning at 3.5 again for June. But amongst the media reporting of this were also headlines about job cuts at Telstra uh, and Coles Group seeing the number of applicants per role almost doubled uh, from what it was 12 months ago, albeit back to maybe what might be more normal levels. So what can lending tell us about the economic picture in Australia? Professor Steve Keane joins us to find out. So through his work in popular books such as Debunking Economics and Can We Avoid Another Financial Crisis, along with his weekly podcast through his Patreon page, Professor Steve Keane strives to educate the world of the failings of neoclassical economics and highlight the risks of the insatiable drive for more debt in modern society. Professor Steve Keane, welcome back to Nucleus, uh, Nucleus Investment Insights. My apologies. Good to be here. That's uh, greetings to Sydney in the middle of the day from Amsterdam at the middle of the night. Thank you for joining us at such an unusual time for you. <laughs> I'll survive, yeah. And here okay. to go through our thoughts on how bank lending um, uh, and m might be incorporated into our portfolios, uh, we're joined by Nucleus Wells Chief Investment Officer, Damien Classen. Hi, Shelley. Hi, Steve. Uh, and I'm Shelley George. Jamie. Sorry, yeah. Steve. <laughs> okay. George. <laughs> um, okay. Yeah, um, Chief Operating Officer at Nucleus Wells coming to you today from the lands of Gadigal people of the Eora Nation. Um, uh, and I'd just like to remind everyone before we get into the meat of the show that um, the information on this podcast is general in nature and it's not going to take into account necessarily your personal situation. So uh, if you did want to discuss anything uh, about your personal financial situation, you can go to our website, nucleuswealth.com forward slash contact and book a call in with our senior financial advisor, Samuel Kerr, to have a no obligation chat. So on that note, Damien, I'll hand it over to you. Yeah, thanks. So, look, the, the reason we're getting Steve back on is um, we've seen a so, – so we saw a, a number of sort of ructions go through the U.S. banking system earlier on this year, and we've seen a, a, quite a, a marked slowdown in credit um, in, in a number of areas over the last uh, – well, not just because of that. That, that sort of helped to, to bring us another leg down, but the credit was already slowing due to higher interest rates. And, and Steve's um, you know, a bit of an expert in, in the idea of money creation and, and this idea that um, I guess we've, we really have been driven by debt and and, um, and I guess given the slowdowns, I guess, what I'm most interested in is trying to work out where the stall speed is and, and whether, that's, whether that's an issue and I, I guess um, how he's seeing it in terms of that. So I might maybe, maybe I could first start, Steve, with the, the US um, sort of Silicon Valley Bank and, and, and those types of, um, you know, what, what you saw coming out of that and I guess the slowdown in, in US regional bank lending? Well, uh, I mean, it's a crazy time for the world economy. There's no point in starting a podcast without saying everything is going pretty crazy all around. Uh, and the obviously the major element that's defined the last four years, whether you believe in it or not, whether you think it's a conspiracy or not, is COVID. And the initial reaction of governments to COVID was one that I, I, I applauded with one hand uh, in that I said they should be doing a, a larger fiscal response because the last thing you wanted to do is have people going bankrupt because they weren't allowed to go to work. 
and that was everybody. Like tenants couldn't pay the rent, landlords couldn't pay the mortgage, et cetera, et cetera. You would have had a complete financial breakdown. Now, the governments were still um, terrified about inflation, which we got to, but that's a later story. Uh, so they did a lesser amount than they should have done. But still, when you look at the American stimulus and quite a few, for quite a large proportion of the population, the stimulus that they got was larger than their normal wage check. Um, so you had an enormous boost to cash in people's hands because when the government runs a deficit, the non-government part of the economy runs an identical surplus. That is just a, a law of accounting. And it's one that neoclassical economists don't understand because they haven't got a clue about balance sheets uh, and how they really work. But that's what actually happens. They had an enormous financial stimulus. That, of course, led to property bubbles because people were then not being able to spend on consumer goods. An obvious choice was to get back into the property market again. So that happened globally. And that did take me by surprise, I've got to say, uh, because I just thought, you know, please, no more bubble. But that happened. Uh, and then in the aftermath, we now have uh, the inflation that's occurred and central banks putting up interest rates around the world dramatically. But that's got two effects. Uh, the one that I normally focus upon is the impact that has upon borrowers who are therefore facing higher borrowing costs or unlikely to go ahead and you'll have a credit crunch. And that's what seems to be finally developing now. But in the, uh, the, the government bonds, what that means is bonds that used to yield when they were sold uh, yield 1% and 2% are now yielding 5%, 4 and 5%. So there's actually quite a substantial income flow to people who are bond owners or bond buyers directly from the government however they get hold of the direct auctions or secondary market and so on. Um, so you have a fiscal stimulus still going on for most economies. The American economy deficit is still running at about of the order of 8 to 10% of GDP, which is quite a strong stimulus. Um, you have the, the rates have gone up, but of course in America, most rates are fixed. So there's been a delayed impact upon credit in that sense, uh, but I think it's still going to come through. So I'd still be expecting a credit hiccup, not the not the uh, I don't know what I would should I use the word fart after what happened in 2008 um, but something less less obscene than what happened in 2008 but still a credit induced slowdown uh, that's more likely to come Australia's way early because of of course the prevalence of floating interest rates uh, in, in the Australian system so the interest rate effect flows through in terms of uh, putting up domestic uh, uh, non non government rates yeah uh, and so actually and just to users so that's just that, um, yeah, Australia has generally fixed rates. US, you, you take out a mortgage and it's generally 30 years and you fi you're fixed for 30 years, whereas whereas Australia, you're lucky if you can get five years. You know, most people end up taking a variable. Um, and, and I guess the other side is that the companies um, tend companies so tend to be similar and you, you're somewhere three to seven years in terms of company debt. And, and so company debt does sort of, you know, 20 or 30% of it rolls off every year in terms of um, mm -hmm. companies needing to refinance at higher rates. Yeah. So, uh, so that's, uh, there's differences nationally around and internationally around the world, but a common theme for most countries uh, is the first of all the impact of rising bond rates on new bond purchases, which is positive. But for Silicon Valley Bank, and this is the point that I, I focused on when it first happened, negative because it destroys the value of existing bonds, mm -hmm. and we've we've never had that before. Uh, certainly on the scale we've got now, the interest rate. This is a, one of the fastest rates increases interest rates and just in terms of where we started from going from one percent to five percent roughly 500 percent increase okay we've had changes from 10 percent to 15 percent beforehand which you know same scale but it's that's you know it's a 30 percent increase not a 500 percent increase so the impact that has upon long-dated bonds is is drastic 
And if you make the, just to illustrate this, I did a simulation in my Minsky software of imagining all bonds are consoles and consoles are therefore infinitely dated. So they're directly inversely valued related to the interest rate. So a couple of interest rate rises would, uh, with, with, with the consoles would have driven the entire banking sector into negative equity. And negative equity means bankruptcy, which is not what you want for the financial sector. So we are, I think we're using conventional tools in a very unconventional environment and paying a large price for it. Yeah. But, but is, it, is it fair to say, though, as well, that um, you know, Silicon Valley Bank um, was not a traditional bank in, 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 and some of these others as well in terms of the rather than getting out and lending to, 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 to people with it, they were actually investing a lot of their money in government bonds. And that was it was almost a, it's almost a bit of a trading issue that they, they a trading mismatch. So traditionally, you know, when you start seeing bank problems, it's because you're, um, the people you've lent the money to can't pay the money back anymore and you start defaulting on the loans, whereas this was more of a, yeah, as I said, almost a trading issue in, in terms of the way they structured their, their, their book. Yeah, but the funny thing is if you looked at their books and said, well, how would you rate this bank? Is it conservative or radical? And mm -hmm. rate conservative meaning cautious, okay? You'd say it's yeah. conservative. Because yeah. rather than lending, it really did operate as a deposit bank for Silicon Valley corporations. And if you think about the banking regulations the states has, that uh, I think it's what protects deposits up to $250,000. Is that correct? Yep. I think so. Yep. That's a lot of money for an individual that's chicken feed for a company. Um, mm -hmm. So the, 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 the regulations don't suit the type of banking that Silicon Valley was being doing, which was fundamentally being, you know, like as like a savings bank for Silicon Valley. I really found it quite ridiculous when I looked at it. I thought that it just doesn't sound like what I thought of coming out of Silicon Valley. But that was the yeah. main way they were selling themselves, the services to the depositors rather than rather than being a lending machine, which is what the, you know, the, the standard bubble banks in America uh, behave like and in, in, in the, uh, the dot-com bubble. So uh, conserv being conservative uh, uh, was dangerous because of the increase in interest rates, mm. and that's not normal. If you if you were being conservative bank uh, at the time of Vokla and not lending out much money, then you saw the value of your bonds rise as interest rates fell. Yes. Uh, okay. So come round, well, your bonds yeah. collapses because the interest rates rise, and you're screwed because you're being conservative. Yeah. Okay. So so so, and in that sense, it's it's sort of unlikely that that's going to spread then to the rest of the banking sector. But the question about, I guess the bigger question is, if you get a slowdown in credit and then you start actually getting real credit problems yeah. coming out of this, then does, and I guess, do you have a, a, a view on that and, and sort of timing and, and I guess what yeah. your thoughts are? Well, on? One, one of the great problems is the data for this is always uh, massively delayed and you know, always behind, behind schedule. So I use the Bank of International Settlements database. And that's like a three-month or six-month lag on actual debt numbers. So I, I can't say, you know, what's happening right now. I should be, if I, if I had a data team behind me, I might be looking at the lending data coming out of the Federal Reserve and things like that, which gives you advance warning of which way credit is going. But if you take a look at credit in America right now, and I can actually do that live, if you like, with my, my Ravel software, that would be, can I scare the, share the screen? Give uh, it a try. Oh, probably. Shelley? Give it a try. Yeah. Okay. Okay, let's share the screen, the entire screen. Now there's going to be a bit of fun here with the disappearing window effect. Can you see my screen? Okay, part of this. This is the early. This is the beta version of software I hope to release commercially uh, next year. And there's a couple of little hassles that occur. So for some reason, it's lost its time formatting here. So oh great, STOI. That's an unrecoverable error. So I can't fix that up. Dates look dreadful. Pardon the fact they got this T 
zero zero going on there. But this is the level of private debt in America, the red line. The black line is government debt, the one that the neoclassicals obsess about. You can see they both had a big spike during COVID and then fell back down again. But if now, you look at credit, which is the annual now, change in debt. In terms of that, sorry, yeah, actually, yeah. That, that spike we can see, and actually, Shelley, I can't actually see that coming yeah. through on the on on the live on, on the live yet. How much of that? How much? Oh, yeah, I've got it. Sorry, yep, it's coming through now. How much of that do you yes. think is because GDP fell as opposed to debt rising? Yeah. That that happened. That's true. There's a plunge in GDP as well. So the ratio, the ratio changed more than the actual amount of money. There was a substantial increase in in uh, fiat money creation. That's that's let's drag this over here. I defined yeah. fiat as the annual change in private debt, and you can see the spike there. The numbers is you know that's twenty five percent of GDP. Yes. So the scale, that's the scale of government spending. Uh, and sorry, yeah, and that data goes increase. back to nineteen forty. I think I can see there. So yes, it goes back to 1940. So nothing, nothing of this scale has happened since the Second World War. Certainly, yeah. and, and I can see even the Great Depression, the scale of this. The Second World War is the only event where government the deficit has been as a similar scale it was it during during COVID. Mm. Yeah. Now, so, so yeah. You, you see that, uh, and this is the point that uh, mainstream economists are useless on money. Um, well, so what and- they're ignoring, yeah. Sorry. And sorry, yeah. and I guess that's, that's what I'm coming back to on some of these on those charts to the left as well. Is it's um, is is some of that is it's overstated because of the fall in GDP, but it also means that the because um, you sort of look at that initially, like you might look at that chart and go, oh well, actually we've just um, things have got way better. You know, yes, okay, the things were bad, but actually that look how fast things got better, and and maybe that'll keep mm-hmm. happening. Maybe that trend will keep happening, but it, but actually the you're probably better off even just getting rid of that little blip, aren't you? And just sort of like if you just sort of line through it, we're still on the rising trend. I guess if you got rid of that blip because you went the the denominator fell away dramatically and then bounced back, and so it made it look as if it's high. But but yeah, we're still well, the, the, the levels there are still increasing. There are two elements to it. There was a larger, even though you take into account the fall in GDP, so the, the denominator falls, the numerator rise was still there and quite yes. substantial. Not as big yeah. as it made it look like the fall in GDP, but still still mm. there and yeah. what you've got therefore is a dramatic level of, of, gov- of government money creation um which which got us through the crisis without without that i think we would have had bank failures galore if we just let it as private sector system if you if you had the level of private debt people are carrying these days you know, of the order of 170 percent of gdp for most economies uh if you have that uh, occurring uh, without people being able to, you know, getting not getting a salary because they weren't able to go to work, not not making a profit because their coffee shops were shut down, etc., cetera, etc., cetera. Uh, you would have had wide-scale bankruptcies and the, the wiping out of the financial system. So you had to do something, and what the government did was the right thing. Uh, maybe kicking and screaming, you know, dragged towards doing it by events rather than thinking ahead, but it did happen. But that, of course, set us up for all the other elements that have come through on. Uh, on uh, the financial system since mm. so so and, and one of those um one of the other things they did was basically um you know uh, suspended the rules for bankruptcies and, and insolvencies and you know most yeah. of the globe and they had to do that yeah most of the globe you know you could trade insolvent and do all those types of things and mm. it seems to me that that meant that we went through i don't know two or three years of like never never seen before so low bankruptcies um, and now oh. we've sort of accelerated as they sort of all kicked on last year, sort of late last year. Most of them sort of rolled off around the world, and and we've sort of accelerated from those low points back up to average. And and 
maybe even a little bit through the average at the moment, but it's, uh, I guess it's this trajectory uh, is, um, are you seeing, do you think this is just a return to normal and actually it's it's going to take another while before we start to see those bankruptcies really start to impact on economies or is this something imminent? I guess what's the sort of, and, and is that line going to keep going up to sort of overshoot, I guess, on, on the other side and uh, get a bit of payback? To, to use a football analogy, we're going to have plenty of own goals and the crisis will coming our way. Um, so the first own goal is damaging the value of government bonds by putting up rates and not being aware of the impact that has on the on the solvency of the financial system. That's number one. Uh, number two, central banks have no, like, the, because they're staffed by neoclassical economists, they have no concept of the impact of credit on aggregate demand. Uh, that it's not globally. There are some who've got a brain on that front. So Michael Kimoff of the Central Bank of the Bank of England understands that there are a handful of people uh, in different you know, banks who've got some awareness of that. But generally speaking, if you do a neoclassical economics degree, it tells you credit has no role in aggregate demand. So you're not worried about whether you put rates up and, and reduce the number of borrowers and savers because you simply see it being like a seesaw. You transfer spending power from the borrower to the saver when lending going up and vice versa when it's going down. No overall impact on credit. That's absolutely wrong. Uh, credit, uh, in, in because we live in a world in which banks create money by loans and nobody borrows for the sheer pleasure of being in debt. Government, uh, lending by private banks, which is credit, boosts aggregate demand dollar for dollar. Yeah. So actually, maybe, you have a point. Sure, just for, just yeah. for people who yeah. haven't sort of heard this before yeah. as well, just to, uh, let me, yeah. maybe I could summarise and see if I get it right from the perspective yeah. is that um, you know, so I, I want to go and build myself a house and I haven't got a loan. Oh. And so then I go, yep, I'm going to go and take a loan out for the bank. And the bank goes, yeah, thanks, Damien. Yep, you meet the criteria. Here's $600,000. Oh. And they and then they create a, simultaneously create a, a, um, a loan on one side of $600,000 that I now owe them and stick oh. $600,000 into my account. And they've created that money brand new. Now I go and give that to... Um, my, my builder, and then he goes and disperses it all over the place, and that's new money that's been created, as opposed to um, yeah. Is, have I got that right yeah. in terms of that's yeah, yeah that's but, what traditional economists don't yeah. look at that. Yeah, yeah, and they've got this idea. The reason they don't is because the reason they gave the Nobel Prize to Bernanke last year, which is probably the greatest joke, one of the greatest jokes in the history of the economics to Nobel prizes. Uh, he promulgates a model called the loanable funds model of lending, and what that says is that you know Steve learns to Shelley. Uh, and therefore, Steve's got less spending power and Shelley's got more than Shelley pays him back and Steve's got more and Shelley's got less and it cancels out. And if that was the real world, then credit would play no role in aggregate demand. But because it's, we live in a world in which banks create money by creating loans, then that, that accounting doesn't work out. And I've done the mathematics. It's absolutely provable that credit is part of aggregate demand and aggregate income. But as you mentioned with your example, it doesn't just stop at the goods market. It goes to asset markets as well. So we have to combine the asset markets and the goods market to get a feeling of what the credit dynamics are overall. But credit is crucially part of demand. So if they trash credit at some point, then we'll have a recession. But credit is still positive and rising, which um, I might go back and show my screen again, if that's mm. okay. I want to show that bottom chart. Yeah. So uh, let's see, entire screen. We're going to have the same old fun with um, the disappearing infinite screen there. But this is credit. Uh, I'll, I'll bring the chart up so you can see it front and centre. And that's from 1940 through to, um, well, that's 2023 data there. And what you have, there's the financial crisis. So we had credit hitting 15% of GDP 
going to minus 5%, which is the first time it fell below zero in the entire post-war period. That's why the downturn was so severe in, um, in the, uh, the 2008 crisis. But we've come out of there, and you can and this is this you know massive volatility up and down credit being hit by COVID at this particular point. But at the moment, it's back up to sort of average levels for the post-war period. My uh, expectation is that as the higher interest rates feed through to people's borrowing, given the level of debt they're having, which of course is far higher here than it was back there, then we're going to see this head down and go towards the negative again. But I'm, you know, I'm, I'm not, um, I'm not expecting a crisis on the scale of 2008 because to have a crisis that big, you've got to have a, um, uh, a, you know, a big bubble beforehand, and we haven't even we've got high levels of debt, which has stopped that bubble actually taking place. So we're not mm. going to fall from as high level of credit as we did last time around. But it's still, you know, the the, me the mechanics are there for the. Federal Reserve to stuff things up again by provoking a decline in credit demand and the economic activity turning down, and they can't understand why. Yeah. Yes. 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 And and where do you think the um because so so some of the more recent data and and as I said it's not fully out yet some of the more recent data sort of post Silicon Valley Bank sort of points towards a, a relatively sharp slowdown certainly not into mm. negative territory or anything but i guess in, in sort of broad picture sense where do you think the stall speed is so so uh, in terms of it being that you know I, I feel as if there's enough debt out there and we're reliant upon this debt for growth that if if we fall below it's not it's not necessarily going negative that actually um sparks it it might actually just be a low positive where where we're just not generating enough um growth yeah to, well it, it did yeah it's a combination of two things this this is you know why um, what's called modern monetary theory is worth people understanding because when it's applied just to domestic inf uh, domestic economy, it's basically accounting. And what it tells you is that there's two ways you can create money. Uh, banks create money by lending more than they get back in repayments, and the government creates money by spending more than it gets back in taxation. Now you have governments obsessed with running surpluses, which actually means they're taking money out of the private sector. If they continue going in that direction, you're going to have low to negative fiat money creation they won't get to negative because the economy would start falling over before they got there but that reduces money the greater growth of monetary demand and then credit is the other thing you know, bank, uh, the the, uh, the credit engine if, if the interest rate gets too high and borrowers aren't willing to consider going into debt and banks aren't willing to consider lending then you have low monetary growth from both credit and government money creation and that will feed through to the overall economy so I see, I don't see a, a crash, but I can see a bit of stagnation in the mm. economy uh, coming out of all this. Yeah. Um, so maybe the two of the um, bigger places that where you know, I guess that there, there may be debt issues. Uh, commercial real estate in the U.S. I guess is one of the key ones that most most people are sort of highlighting as to to, to where there could be an accident. Um, I guess your mm. thoughts on on commercial real estate and um, and in part of the, uh, yeah, yeah, that's driven by the work from home, obviously. But, yeah. Yeah, well, that's a huge fact. I mean, we've never had that happen before. And <laughs> a lot of people complained about working from home, but quite a few thought this is actually damn good too. So you have a massive overvaluation of the existing real estate, courtesy of that. That's a classic exogenous shock, by the way. That's probably the first time something has come along, which you can say the, the, the up and down of the economy is caused by what economists think the ups and downs are always caused by, which is something coming in from outside the economy. Mm -hmm. uh, exogenous shock. So yeah, it, it's it, it's dubious as to how they'll ever get back to the level of uh, 
valuation because, of course, the real estate commercial valuation depends upon occupancy rates. And if you've now had a huge hit to occupancy, um, then it's going to be a sluggish sector, even if it's not going to be a sector that has a crash. And if you're highly geared with sluggish revenue, then you could be in trouble. Yep. The other one um, that I find very interesting, and I'll, I'll tell you, is the Chinese property market. And I'll give you oh, my yeah. take, yeah. my 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 initial take, and I'd be interested to see your thoughts on it. Is that I look through the Chinese developers, and the, and the top twenty developers are actually pretty similar. Like, although although you go, um, yes, there's obviously some that are. Um, that are worse than others. They're actually all pretty much in the in a similar boat. In that, um, if you look at their sales, um, about they owe about half their sales, their annual sales, they owe in in um, just payables to to their either their own staff or, or or contractors and all that type of stuff. So basically, they they haven't paid yeah. people for six months. So they've got a they're, they're almost they've taken out a, a big chunk of debt effectively from their suppliers. Then you look and they yeah. go, they've got like two or three years worth of inventory sitting on their books they haven't sold. And then you look and, yeah. and they go, actually, they've also got on the on the flip side, of, on top of that, they've actually got uh, a year and a half's worth of um, money they've taken in from people to build stuff that they haven't yet built. So they've sort of borrowed from oh, their, right. yeah. Yeah. borrowed from those people. And then you go, when you look debt to equity, they're about, for every dollar of equity, they've got about, ten, they've got about $10 worth of debt. And so, you know, under, under no circumstances, like any one of those individually, you'd be like, maybe I shouldn't give to this money, give money to this company. But but so yeah. I guess what I'm getting to with that is the whole sector looks, you know, completely uninvestable, but um, the central bank is basically saying, okay, we're going to keep providing you money until so you can build the stuff that people have already paid for. And I guess where I'm looking at from that is saying, well, that, it's almost like they're a utility now. It's basically, they're, they're basically saying, okay, you're gonna, you're gonna, we're going to keep these things alive that probably should die um, mm. with just enough debt to keep them going so they can build the stuff for people that's already paid for. Because if these things fell over, you know, that's the whole economy is probably gone and, and potentially the Communist Party with them. So, um, yeah. Mm. Yeah. And so I guess that's, I'm sort of interested in your thoughts in terms of, you know, it's almost like a force-fed debt now and, and what that means in terms of uh, the, the Chinese economy. You know, is it just a slow sort of um, sink away without a, without a, without the the chance of a crisis or is there the, you know, or is there a crisis factor that I'm missing here somewhere or, or is there an upside that I'm missing to that? Oh, there's a lot of stuff you can miss me looking at China. I might actually yeah. go back to sharing my screen again with another another file that doesn't have the same bug issue that mm -hmm. I showed with the last one I just used. And uh, again, quickly, because I want to show the Chinese data here. Um, so pardon me for the crazy effect here. And then, boom, can you see my screen yep. now? That looks a bit better. Okay, okay. So that's because this is China's private debt level. And you can see that it actually exploded during the financial crisis that if you just know that's there's 2007 there so you, the beginning of the financial crisis occurred the data is displaced here for the bottom chart again this this is all beta software so you can see that that actually is starting here so the the, the, the two zeros don't overlap but there's the increase in credit that occurred uh during the financial crisis a 40 percent increase from you know, levels averaging about 12 percent never getting beyond 25 hitting 40 percent of gdp and that's what started the property bubble in in china um now that's we we, we all know the huge overbuilding both of commercial and and residential real estate in china and to some extent 
the Chinese Communist Party is now committed to that because so many people have bought properties as an investment that if there's a clash, clash in asset value, then you can get some pretty interesting riots happening outside uh, government offices in China and certainly bank offices. Um, so, but, and they're now stabilizing at a level of private debt, which is actually higher than the Western world. So if you go back to the pre-crisis level, uh, there's private debt at about 120% of GDP. At the same time, America was 170%. Okay? And, and, and sorry, this Japan is, was in, 225. In yeah. private, yeah. this is uh, households plus corporates, or is it just yeah, households plus corporates? Yeah. Households plus corporates. I could break it down, but it's households plus corporates. Okay, and, mainly and corporates. That, do you, I think. think it, yeah. Does that include much of the S, the state-owned entities in the corporates, or is that yeah? Separated? Well, this is this. This, this is that started put together by the Bank of International Settlements. So that's a question right. you have to ask them rather than me. I yeah, think no. I think the most likely is it's hard to assemble the whole data, but the basic point is huge credit-based stimulus in 2008, 2010 is what pulled China out of the downturn being caused by the global financial crisis hitting their exports and Australia uh, as well. Can, as they did in Australia, Australia. Well, we bene yeah. we benefited from that too. Yeah. Mm. Um, then, then what you've got is this huge overhang of debt. But the thing is, of course, most of the banks are either owned by the Communist Party or controlled by the Communist Party in the sense that you, you when the Communist Party tells you to do something, you say, yes, sir, okay? You don't, yeah, yeah. You don't debate whether exactly. you own it or not. If they say um, you're, lending so, to this, you're lending to this property company so they can finish, you don't go in there and say, no, no, but they've already got too much yeah. debt and, and they're not paying their bills to their suppliers and they've got, you know, all these yeah. other quasi debt that's all over the place you just go yes I don't, yeah. yeah and the other thing is the, the central because the government there's so much more control of the, the monetary system in china than than um the western world even they'd let it go crazy to get themselves through the global financial crisis uh effectively it's possible for the for the chinese government to do what you mentioned the americans and so did recently waive bankruptcy rules and stuff like that let you operate insolvently etc cetera, etc cetera. um so if, if a credit crunch in China can be be addressed very directly, because effectively the government runs runs the private sector as well, not completely, but you know, much more much more powerful and influence than we've got today um, in the West. So yeah, I expect to see disturbances, but you know, China is basically going to write that debt off, and it's mm. a question of whether they do it effectively or not. But they've got because they have the ownership of the financial sector or the control of the financial sector. Um, they can get out of it in the ways we can't do in the West. Yeah, yeah. Okay. So, so, so I guess uh, am I right then in saying that you know an, an acute crisis is is seems unlikely. It's more likely to be a just a, a long period, long, long period of slow growth. Yeah. Well, that's. I mean, that's that. that's one like not the on. That's not the reason I'm focusing on climate change and the economics of that these days. But I think uh, fundamentally, that's going to overwhelm everything else. When that starts hitting, you can throw everything else you worry about out the window. Mm. Um, so uh, to me, in that sense, COVID was a trial run for what's going to come our way with uh, with um, uh, climate change. And of course, we failed that with flying colours. So you know, I'm not exactly holding out hope about. How are we going to manage what will lead us through disturbances from climate change? Damien, well, okay, so it's, a quick break uh, before we jump into yeah, that. sure, yep, okay, sounds great. good. We'll be back with the investment insights very shortly. Nucleus Wealth is an active and passive investment manager. If you like what you're hearing and want some help with the investing, we can do it for you via our active portfolios. Our tactical and core portfolios use the insights shared in this podcast to construct and manage your investment. 
We blend tactical portfolios to offer our combinations of international shares, Australian shares, government bonds, and cash. We vary the asset allocation with the goal of protecting your capital in times of market uncertainty. We also have active international and Australian share portfolios. These are chosen using our quality and value investment philosophy. You can find out more at NucleusWealth.com. Now back to the show. All right, we're back. Um, we have one question, okay. but maybe do you want to do climate change first? Which what we should order, Damien? Yeah, let's go, let's go to climate change. So, Steve, you've got a paper out, I think, is it today? It's being released or is it? No. no. Snap it next, next month, next week, next week. Next week. So okay. I've finished it, it, it and and it'll it'll be talking about how economists, if you think they've got the financial crisis one, you're going to see nothing yet about what they've done on climate change. Okay. So, yeah, well, do you want to give us the, the big picture on that? Okay. Um, you know, William Nordhaus, the economist, got the Nobel Prize for his work on climate change in 2018. Uh, for various reasons, I hadn't, you know, it's part of neoclassical economics, I hadn't attacked um, uh, earlier in debunking economics, but I finally had a look at it after he got the prize, and I've never seen such nonsense. I mean, I've, you know, I'm a critic of mainstream economics, but at least I'm criti criticizing theoretical absurdities. He uses empirical absurdities. So in his first estimate of the uh, published estimate of the economic impact from climate change. He said that three degrees of warming would reduce future GDP, uh, which is going to therefore be growing over time, by no more than one quarter of 1% compared to what it would be in the complete absence of climate change. Yes, Shelley, I agree entirely with your facial reactions there, literally. And the reason was, he said, because most of the GDP is generated by uh, enterprises that take place in carefully controlled environments that will be negligibly affected by climate change. Now, to give you an idea of how carefully he's put that out, he classified 87% of American GDP as being taking place in carefully controlled environments, which would not be affected by global warming. <laughs> and that included mining. Right. He sort of neglected the fact that there's open cut mining, which therefore is exposed to the weather, which is what he's identified climate change as. So the only sectors thought to be affected by climate change, those you know, without a roof. And that is so childishly stupid um, that it should never have been published in anything other than a kindergarten draft, uh, which hopefully the parents would take home and feed to the dog afterwards. <laughs> Instead, they gave a no for him. So why the was standards, it I mean, yeah, I mean, why was it published because, before? <laughs> because neoclassical economists and, and, and this, the, there's a long ideological explanation here that if you become a neoclassical economist, you basically end up believing capitalism can cope with anything. Therefore, nothing can be a threat. Oh, okay. Right. okay. And like I've, I've had plenty of conversations with mainstream economists saying, oh, look, if it's warmer, I'll just wear one less cardigan during winter. You think you're bloody lunatic. You shouldn't be allowed near um, anything where science is involved. But that's what they've done. So people thought, and I thought this before I read their papers, I thought they'd taken estimates of physical damages to things like uh, you know, crops, obviously, but also manufacturing uh, facilities, et cetera, et cetera, by scientists, and then discounted that and got a low damage coming out of that. And that's not what they've, they've made up their own numbers. And they made up their own numbers on completely spurious grounds. So they've assumed, first of all, anything with a roof won't be affected. So they've just done damages to agriculture and forestry, not largely. And that's what they get their estimates from, as though the rest of the economy will sail through unscathed. Um, and they've then assumed that they can use the current relationship between temperature and GDT to predict what's going to happen when temperature rises over time. Now, that's juvenile. 
So, sorry, what, yeah. what do you mean by that? So in a cold okay. country, you get less GDP, in a warm country, you get more GDP, well, you, or vice versa? They, they, they started off in America using what they call the Ricardian approach to working out damages, and they said, yep. well, country, if you, what's happened geographically is the people have optimised what they do in production in different regions. Okay? Hmm. So we can take the current uh, distribution of, of economic activity across America as being representative of what it would be at different temperature levels as temperature rises over time. Right. Now, there's absolutely no correlation between geographic impact of climate, where there's the same level of energy in the in the biosphere, and you're just mm. changing where you are on on this on the surface of the planet to have different temperature and rainfall effects. Um, that's got nothing to do with what happens as you raise the overall temperature of the planet. But yeah. they, and they will proudly argue that, well, whatever, you know, if you, if you can't prove that something happens over space, in other words, temperature doesn't matter geographically, then you can't prove it matters over time as well. Now, that's juvenile. Right. So, so, so effectively, we're just saying, let's yeah. just give, let's give San Francisco LA's economy because everything gets a bit warm and you push everything up and we'll give Portland, San Francisco's economy and, yeah. <laughs> that's basically it so what they i mean i've done this just as a joke myself so you you can get data on gross state product and in america and average temperature and then i've done a scatter plot of the two and it's a it's a scatter plot like your child has thrown this thrown the family porridge at the tv screen you know there's some sort of pattern there but it's pretty hard to work it out they fit that with a quadratic y equals x squared saying the impact of temperature depends on the temperature difference squared and I fitted that to data, and I got a damage function twice as big as Nordhausen's out of that. So he's, it, it is just ludicrous to say that like a 10-degree increase in temperature will cause about a 15% fall in GDP because there's effectively 10 degrees difference between New York and Florida, and if you went up 10 degrees, you'd, you'd go from New York's income to Florida's income. Uh, yeah. they'll, they'll try to say it's more fancy than that. That's fundamentally what they've done. Their numbers are nonsense, and mm. that because... Most people trust them and think they're experts. The political class and the media in general uh, has think, oh, climate change isn't all that much of a worry. Look, it's only going to cause the next percent fall in GDP. Uh, that X is going to be you know, X to the power of X when it actually hits. Yeah. And I wonder, though, and maybe this partly comment for you, Shelley, is why, why published is, you know, I guess if, if you... Um, in a sense, Stephen, I, I think there's a the part where we go. I, I want, I want an answer that says I shouldn't have to worry about this. Can you find me right. an economist yeah. who will deliver me that answer, and then we will, we will promote their work. Yeah. Right. So I have another mm. question. Um, obviously, we've been talking about the the peace users as, as a base idea. This idea of different average temperatures in areas, but mm. it seems to me that one of the key concerns from climate change is the uh, instability in in temperatures and and natural, uh, uh, I guess, disasters. So. Um, mm. uh, it sounds like they've obviously uh, excluded that from the analysis. Is that right, Steve? Effectively, I mean. Uh, I, what I thought I'd have to do when I decided to go and you know, apply my usual critical eye to this part of neoclassical economics, I, I thought I'd be explaining why a Ramsey growth model is the wrong framework for long-term uh, damage estimates and, 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 and technical, and why the discount rate should be negative rather than positive, et cetera, et cetera. Um, but I haven't even got there because they're just their stupid assumptions. You just look at them and think, you're a moron. I mean, you're an intelligent moron. You're, as, as, was, as once was said of economic education, you're an idiot savant. You've been trained to handle complicated mathematical techniques, but you don't realise 
your your underlying logic is just has no connection to the real world. So my favourite example there is a recent paper, 2021, uh, by a, a guy led by a guy called Dietz, who's London School of Economics, I think, uh, where they said that losing eight major elements of the, the climate would cause a 1.4% fall in future GDP. Now, those eight elements are the Arctic, summer sea ice, Greenland, West Antarctic, the Amazon basin, uh, the, 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 what's called the AMOC, the effectively people think is the Gulf Stream, keeps, that keeps Europe warm, the Indian monsoon, ocean methane hydrates, and permafrost. All of those eight being triggered would reduce GDP by 1.4% compared to what they would be in the complete absence of climate change. That, by the way, is at an average temperature six degrees higher than at the moment. How much is it going to reduce the human population by? Exactly. <laughs> like I mean, how much extra is everyone, everyone who's left going to be spending? Yeah, I know. And we've already seen, we're seeing already, you know, we're about 1.25 degrees above average right now, about the pre-industrial average. And we're already seeing, you know, news about, you know, people are worried about Texas, you know, as a potential location where you could have a failure of the, the, of the, of the power system, failure of air conditioning, Temperatures people can't recover from, and large deaths through to through to what's called the the wet body the wet bulb temperature catastrophe in Texas. Now uh, that's one point five. You try six. Okay? Mm. Um, so uh, the number of people who are going to die because of this is, is what's making me so angry. Because the financial crisis just wiped out people's financial futures. This is going to wipe out their lives. Mm. Yes. Um, okay. So. Um cheerful name yeah that's right that's, that's, that's a good good way good way to finish that's a, well actually and, and and you know i think there's there's obviously that point well is there any anything else on that paper i suppose what else what else can we talk about the paper well i mean there's, there's a lot in it so it's coming out from carbon tracker it should be released next wednesday mm. so that's the current expectation where it's going to be out freely available please take a look we're focusing on what it what it what it means for people's pensions because of course, pension funds have taken this because it's refereed publications. They think refereed means high quality. Work must be okay. We, the consultants have then taken that on board and then told pension funds, for example, Uni Super, which is my, my superannuation fund, sent me a document saying that two degrees warming would be overall the best situation for my portfolio. Two degrees of warming would increase annual returns by 0.05%. Yes. Now, that's one reason why. I wonder why there's no action being taken on climate change. The reason is because politicians, their advisors, journalists, economists, of course, is the source of all this nonsense, have swallowed this stuff and, and basically it describes the future accurately. And therefore, that's the future they're preparing for, where literally two degrees of warming will make things better. Now, what we're going to get is total climate chaos. We're already seeing the beginning of it this year is off the scale if you're following any of the indicators for temperature levels around the planet. And it's scary as hell. And the people who scare me more than me are the ones who know more than I do about the data. And that's particularly terrifying. Mm, yeah. Well, and I think there's there's obviously some um, some stuff we saw last just from last year that um, I think people wouldn't have expected in terms of um, you know the uh, all these nuclear power plants off off uh, offline in, in in Europe in the middle of a massive energy crisis because. Um, They'd be putting out water that would make the that would start killing the fish because the water's too warm. The, the average warm the average water temperature in the in the rivers, and so yeah. there's just stuff like that yeah. that's not even not even thought about within these models. Obviously, that's and that's, the, uh, this is this is the major problem. We did we're, we're energy blind. I mean, uh, here I am with the light. It's five o'clock in the morning in, in Amsterdam, 
uh, we just take it for granted, turn and flick a switch and you've got electric power and a light. <clears throat> we are energy blind. We're simply not aware of these which we're dependent upon energy and how it, it's formed. And then this, the fragilities that exist. So, yeah, the nuclear power stations had to be shut down because global warming meant there's been a fall in rainfall pattern so the rivers didn't have enough water. They couldn't cool the water sufficiently for the plants to operate. So by the time you need more nuclear power, you had less. And, of course, the same problem applies to coal-fired power stations. They've got to cool their water as well. Um, so we may well face with rising temperatures, it becomes impossible to get the temperature, to get the in, in performance you like out of the energy sector. And we're there before burning more carbon fossil fuels to try to make up for the, the failure of the existing resources. So, yeah, we're in there's this you know, sheer and utter chaos and coming larger because economists don't understand energy in particular, but fundamentally they don't understand the economy either. Mm-hmm. Yes. Yes. Okay. Well, that's, that's probably a, an even happier note to say that we've got the better day <laughs> to finish up on. Um, Shelley, mm. back, back to you for another quick break. All right. Yep. Uh-huh. We'll be back again shortly. If you like what you're hearing but want a low cost passive option, Nucleus Wealth is the first to offer passive direct indexing in Australia. The first generation of passive investing was index funds, the next gen was ETFs. Now, direct indexing is here with significantly more customization and control. The benefit of direct indexing is you can add or subtract investment themes, and we have almost 100 different options to choose from. For example, you could buy an international share direct index portfolio that excludes fossil fuels and arms manufacturers and has a tilt towards cybersecurity and cloud computing. Alternatively, you could buy a portfolio with no screens and an extra exposure to nuclear power and defense contractors. You can find out more at NucleusWealth.com. Now back to the show. And we're back. All right, so let's jump into the questions. We've got one here from Peter. How does the world get out of this debt bubble without crashing the world economy? The easiest way for governments to do what I call a modern debt jubilee which is basically say, look, we made a mistake. We let the private financial sector rip and create too much private debt, too much credit. Um, we need to cancel that debt without just without crashing. No, you, you want to bring asset prices down, frankly, but you don't want to bring it down if you wipe out people's equity. So uh, the proposal I put forward is to use the government's capacity to create money to give everybody an equal amount of money. And then if you have debt, you've got to pay the debt down. If you don't, you get either a cash injection or you get government bonds, depending on whether you want to stimulate the economy or not. Um, and that would then reduce the level of private debt dramatically. And it also has the impact, when I model it, of increasing economic activity because you're effectively putting more money in the hands of workers to spend more money. Because uh, the vast majority of people who got that cash would be workers, not capitalists, just because there are more workers than capitalists. Yeah. So hence, you'd have a stimulus to the economy. And well, you therefore, as well as reducing the debt burden directly, you'd also reduce it indirectly over time through more economic activity. Um, that may look a bit passe well, since I say that uh, climate change is going to bring that to an end. But it would be relatively simple for a government to do it. And when we look back at history, the ancient civilizations had regular debt jubilees, and they were frankly more aware about debt than we are. And we should be doing a similar thing and making the level of private debt one of the control mechanisms in the economy, which at the moment, because it isn't, that's one of the reasons we've got into this pickle. Yes, yes. And, and then that, that does raise, and do you think that creates moral hazard though, in terms of it being... No, well, that, 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 
I'm just taking that, a big that, loan out. Oh, let me go again. That, yeah. That's one of the reasons I came up with the idea of a modern debt, Chiboli, because when I first proposed this back in 2006 or thereabouts, Mm. Or 2007, somebody said, "Well, what about moral hazard? If you only pay the debtors off, and you 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 reward the people who speculated, you don't reward the ones who stayed out of the speculative bubble." Right. So I said, "Okay, make it to everybody, and then mm. you have this idea that those who don't have debt get a cash injection." So the thing yeah. is, it doesn't actually benefit you uh, to be geared. You want to take away the benefit of gearing. At the moment, you know, you know, in the corporate sector, because you can deduct interest payments, but you don't deduct equity payments, then we have a bias in favour of debt finance rather than equity finance there. In yeah. the household sector, because you're using debt to, to buy housing, which is driving up housing prices, et cetera, et cetera, you get a positive feedback on the level of debt you take on in the household sector as well. And household debt is now five times what it was per capita uh, from, say, 30 years ago. And of course, we're talking interest rates that are now comparable to what they were in the in the uh, late, late, late 60s, early 70s. Um, so the debt level is five times what it was. The rates are the same. That's not a healthy situation. So we have you want to because we made a mistake of ignoring debt. We have to get bring it down, and that would be a mechanism to do it. And you, you know, also you know, certainly there'd be dangers. Things could go wrong. You'd want to you know do test runs, small amounts of it, and see what actually happened, and then mm. modify the policy afterwards. But fundamentally, we have a mechanism by which we could reduce private debt. Private debt is a problem, not government debt. We should use that mechanism and stop worrying about uh, a, a, a will of the wisp, which is the government debt issue, and focus on the real issue, which is private debt. Mm. Yeah. Excellent. Um, Shelley? Uh, that's it. We don't have any other questions at this point in time. So, um, okay. mm -hmm. Damien, is there anything else you want to chat about, or should we ask Steve where we can find out more from him? Yeah, that sounds good. Steve. Okay. Well, my yep. So my two two places to locate. To, I'll just do the same story again. And pardon the the craziness when we suddenly see the disappearing windows. So I have two websites people can follow me through. One is Patreon, and that's my Patreon site there. Patreon.com slash Prof Steve Keen, and the other is the Substack. The content for the, for the episode. Sorry, we'll grab yep. that uh, URL for everyone. Anyone who's on the podcast and can't see it, we will make sure that's in the notes for the episode. Thanks, Steve. And the other the other is pop, uh, uh, Substack. It's profstevekeen.substack.com. Um, so, uh, you know, I mean, the, the mainstream universities are never going to produce uh, a new economics. Uh, it, they're going to continue regurgitating the same old thing. So if you want a non-orthodox approach, you have to get you know, public support for you know, people like myself who are trying to build a realistic economics. And, uh, you know, it's not going to come out of Harvard or Princeton to mention two places I've lectured at just recently. Why is that, Steve? Uh, because you have a paradigm, uh, a way of thinking about the world which dominates any intellectual profession. And economics has this neoclassical paradigm which came out of the 1870s. Uh, basically, it's a reaction to Marx. And it describes a perfect mechanical system, reaches equilibrium, you get paid what you're worth, etc., etc. It's a very seductive, effectively cult-like vision of an anarchist um, libertarian society where there's no control, no force, etc., etc. And that has a deep ideological appeal to people who get into it. So the economists, they're trying to promulgate it and push it forward. <clears throat> Only when you take a step back and say, hang on a sec, that doesn't sound like it describes the real world properly. This particular feature worries me. And then 
people who make that, and I'm one of those people who did it, obviously, goes out and take a look and think, it's all, you're all a bunch of raving loonies. This doesn't describe the real world at all. Uh, you've got an intricate, elaborate mathematical model that has fallen over numerous times. You've ignored the mathematical errors that's been involved there because you like the vision. So you simply can't shift that paradigm. Um, in a genuine science, anomalies would come along that would disturb the paradigm and force change. Anomalies do happen in economics, of course. The global financial crisis wasn't supposed to happen, according to the mainstream. Um, but rather than saying, oh, we've got an anomaly we can't explain, um, you go on to the next problem. You, you forget about the Great Depression. You forget about the Great Recession. Go on to the next issue. You can always find students who find the uh, underlying system appealing, whereas in genuine sciences, once you have an anomaly, it's there for the students to reproduce at any time. Even if the professors try to avoid it, uh, the students right. know about it. When the professor has to retire, they're replaced by somebody who accepts the new paradigm. Uh, that process doesn't work in economics. So, I mean, it's so confusing. <laughs> I can't understand where the, where the vested interests are around it because when I did economics, which was a while ago, there was genuine... Not as long as me. Sure. Acknowledgement that... Um, it, it wasn't working then and, you know, we've made a few sort of steps towards behavioural economics, but you've obviously talked today about the serious issues that, wow. that um, underpin it uh, and um, it su has such a um, capacity to affect everyday, everyday lives of people, maybe more so than some of the sciences. So, um, yeah, I don't know. Yeah, it's, it's, it, it, it desperately matters that it's realistic. Um, but the trouble is the whole history of economics has been political. Um, and like if you go back to Adam Smith, his, his argument was pro-capitalist and anti-feudal. Mm -hmm. We forget that, you know, going about a quarter of a, you know, quarter of a millennium, the, the, the dominant political system was still largely feudalism, which were coming out of all the restrictions of feudalism. And Smith's argument was anti those controls and pro-merchants, et cetera, et cetera. Then Marx, of course, this... This this then led to the you know, the industrial revolution at the same time. So the enclosure movements and peasants becoming workers and the horrible situation in nineteenth century Europe. I my picture for nineteenth century Europe is is mid twentieth twentieth century India. Okay, pollution levels. Uh, you know, Karl Marx and Jenny Marx moved out of Chelsea in London because of a cholera epidemic. So we, we, we don't tend to have that historical context anymore to know just how bad the situation was there. That led to the calls for socialism. Marx used the classical school to be an argument against capitalism and pro-socialism. And that's when what's called neoclassical economics took over in the academy. And I really, I haven't analysed that carefully myself, but a lot of it's got to be, you know, because those people are politically favourable. But once it's there, it's the, the people who push this stuff, and these are my fellow economists, are not, most of them are nice people. They're not doing it for the money. They do it because they believe in it. My favourite example of that was I, I, I set up a guy from the industrial, industrial, uh, what's called the Productivity Commission. He doesn't, he didn't realise this, but I, he spoke in front of uh, employers and unions for the food processing industry, and they ripped shreds off him, and he was in total shock. Uh, and then we had a, at a bar later, uh, he, I sat down, I was feeling sorry for the guy, and he finally said to me, "Look, you're an economist." Help me convert these people. Mm. The, the belief system. Yes. Right, I see. Yeah, okay. All right. Oh, dear. Um, yeah. Well, 
had a, had a few like questions, Shelley. Oh, okay. great. Okay. Do you, you've got them in front of you? Yeah, sure. Um, uh, so, so uh, Bright Light, Distant Star, is asking uh, how do we start to lobby for change and where do we start? Uh, uh, politically, you have, the, the main thing is to get people to be aware that, that in, in terms of the current political issue which matters, getting the people aware that government debt is not a problem, the private debt's the problem. That's the major issue to do. On that front, what's called modern monetary theory uh, is the is, it, when it's applied just looking at what the government does is the best possible development that's happened since Keynes because we've finally got a non-orthodox theory um, being pushed forward in the public in a way that hasn't happened since Keynes. Yeah. And they basically say, look, government debt is your asset. Okay? Mm. If the government goes into there's a liability to you by having by having a negative equity, that creates your positive equity, dollar for yeah. dollar. We do look at this, think- this is how fiat currency operates. So if yeah. we know that, we'd have more freedom to do things with government money than being you know, told we've got to shut down schools because, uh, you know, we, we don't have the money to educate people. Well, mm. that's that's a double whammy that comes back and bites you twice. So, so and I, look, I've got a lot of sympathy for the, the concepts of modern energy policy applied properly. But I, oh. I, what I worry about is that um, that what's going to, what's the lesson that a lot of um, people have learned in, in inverted commas from, oh. from the latest thing is, oh. That modern monetary policy, yeah, we tried something like that at the pandemic, caused all this inflation. See, we told you it would cause inflation. Never yep, try that yep. ever again. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I, the, the inflation has the, the inflation is almost in most countries in the world. It's it's already ended because the major source of it was supply side, the impact of COVID on supply chains, um, and the impact of the rising energy costs on production. Um, so the fact, the idea that interest rates. That the, the government stimulus did play a role, and that's because when you take when you when you when you decompose the factors that cause inflation using the non-orthodox approach that I take, you bring it down to three major factors: the markup that firms impose, uh, the, the the cost of production, and the amount being paid to workers. Now, the amount being paid to workers um, was positive for a short while in the early part of the crisis. This is the same thing applied in the 70s. But fundamentally, the inflation has come from rising markup and falling productivity. That's yeah. where they've come from. Now, um, so can I actually ask the, right, the right, one? Just, yeah, yeah. Would, would it have um, uh, receded without any intervention from central banks on interest rates? Yes, yes, it would have. Okay. Um, but but the the main thing is the government spending did play a role because one thing that restrains the markups is what the person who developed this theory, a guy called Mikhail Kolecki, called the degree of competition. Now, that's not how many firms you have. It's how much competitive pressure manufacturers feel. Because if, you, if you're like you're pumping out cars and, you know, your sales are being affected by the marketing, your, Daimler, your, your Ford and you know, your marketing of, of, uh, of uh, GM is affecting your sales, then you'll be restrained. But if you have the level of monetary demand that occurred because of the fiscal stimulus during COVID itself, stuff is just going out the warehouse. So you think we can put prices up? Okay. So the government stimulus did make the room for markups to increase, but that meant your form of inflation was different to what the theory tells you, which says, oh, it's workers' wage demands. Workers' wage demands are being below with the rate of inflation uh, for the for pretty much the duration of the crisis. So the idea of putting up interest rates to crush demand out of the economy is a pretty primitive way to do it. You would be rather trying to get firms to reduce their markups, um, which will happen gradually anyways, they feel more competitive pressure 
with less demand in the economy. So definitely the government spending did play a role, but the, the real cause was firms reacting to that by putting up their markups. Yes, yes, we've dealt with that a few times on this one. And the other one, the other interesting one, so Chris Dobby um, is asking, what other ways have we got to get the workers' population of the economy increased, which is sort of, I guess, flowing exactly back to that that we've, you, you're speaking about there in terms of um, yeah, if, if companies are putting up their, their wages, sorry, sorry, putting up their profit uh-huh. shares, then, then they're obviously getting a, a larger slice of, of what's coming through. Yeah, I mean, the major cause of, of uh, instability from capitalism for the last 50 years has been letting the finance sector get too big. Okay. Huge levels of private debt. That's And that actually, when I mathematically model that in my, my uh, uh, complex systems approach to economics, rising private debt, even if the if, even if the borrowing is done by firms, not by households, rising private debt causes falling workers' share. So the increasing uh, price uh, pr- debt levels are being paid for by the working class, not by the not by the, the capitalists, um, and that's a huge part of the. W- if you go back to the fifties and sixties, before we let debt get out of control, you had what was called the golden age of capitalism. There was not a large level of debt, large large turnover of existing money. As the debt levels risen, the rate of turnover of money has fallen because people are thinking, oh, "I've got to hang on to the money that I need to pay my debt down." So there's less spending coming out of that, less spending out of cash. Um, and when people do that, they don't actually create more money. They just reduce GDP. So all these factors have meant that when we slipped up, when we changed over from the 50s and 60s, which was fundamentally old-style Keynesian, uh, you know, don't worry about government deficits, um, keep the banks under control, don't let them lend too much. Uh, there was a huge economic activity from turnover of existing cash. That's gone. And now instead, if you're going to get extra demand, it comes out of credit. So that's a huge reason why a major factor has to be to try to reduce the level of private debt to back to what was in the 50s and 60s and not let it get out of control again, uh, which would mean a finance sector about one half to one third the size that it is now. Mm. Yes. Yeah, I think I spoke to you about this last time. Is that I quite like the, um, the the GDP version of the, the economy where the finance sector is treated as a negative rather than as a positive. And yeah, so fundamentally, it's a cost. It's a cost of production. Mm. Yeah, it's, it's not a profit center. You know, this yeah. is the mistake we made, treating it like a profit center. So that's put the cost of business dramatically, and uh, and burden people who don't, who shouldn't be thinking about this. They should be thinking about the kids, not the value of the house and what their shares are worth. So we we have a distorted world coming out of that, and that's partly where the neuroticism of the modern modern world emanates from. Yeah. Excellent. Thank, thank you very much. That was uh, yeah. great. Well, great show. Thank you. All right. So, to, to listeners, uh, well, actually, yes, first, Steve, thank you so much for making the show. Um, uh, really enjoyed it. Thank you. Uh, oh, by so the way, one more thing I better, one thing I better mention. You may see some annoying ads coming out with my name attached to them about a, 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 about a, a free cartoon book and maybe a set of courses. They're actually genuine with marketing. It's still waking up that that's not the way you market to my bars. So I'm giving a set of courses on economics, uh, 16 lectures for 500 US dollars, uh, which you'll find in a roundabout way using that system. I'm trying to get them to improve their marketing right now. That's another way to get in touch and also to support my work. Okay. So can you give us the link okay. to, to give to listeners in the in the show notes for that, Steve? Yep, I'll do that. It's embarrassing in some ways, but let's hope they improve the marketing as time goes on.
fingers crossed. Um, okay. All right. So, uh, for listeners, if you enjoy our content at Nucleus Wealth, please subscribe to the YouTube channel, uh, like the video, and click the bell to be notified uh, if we have any special episodes or future content coming your way. Um, also, if you know anyone who might get value out of today's episode, we would really appreciate you sharing it with them, maybe a friend, a family member, or a colleague. So, for myself, Damien, and the rest of the team at Nucleus Wealth, thanks for watching today, and we look forward to seeing you at the next one. Bye for now. <laughs>